chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And just verse 4 of Romans 2. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Bill Gates, owner of Microsoft, for 15 years in a row now, uh, has been voted the world's most wealthiest man. Uh, his personal fortune runs into scores of billions. He's richer than some nations. A billionaire one time gave his wife a million dollars. He said, I want you to go out and spend a thousand dollars a day. And when you run out, come back and I'll give you more. So she went out to spend a thousand dollars a day. She came back three years later and said, give me some more. I've run out. So he gave her a billion dollars to spend at a thousand dollars a day. And she came back in 3,000 years. Actually, no, of course she didn't, but 3,000 years and a thousand dollars a day. If that had been Melissa Gates, Bill Gates' wife, she wouldn't have been able to come back for 240,000 years. <laughs> How would you like to be married to Bill Gates? <laughs> I think some of you could spend it in half that time. But anyway, is being rich only having personal material wealth? Is a rich man only rich because he has pots of dough? I don't think so. It's said that... Uh, Mike Tyson, the former world champion boxer, blew his 200 million fortune on his crass lifestyle. He had lots of money, but he wasn't very rich, really. The Bible has an entirely different concept of riches. In the Bible, a poor man can be very rich, and a very rich man can be a pauper. The classic example is the rich man and Lazarus the beggar. Beggar sat at his gate daily, trying to get some food even that the dogs would eat. And he fared sumptuously every day. But whenever they died, the rich man went to hell, and the poor man went to paradise. The word riches, or rich, appears 23 times in the New Testament, and 15 of those times it is used by the Apostle Paul. It was one of his favorite words. In Greek mythology, Pluto was the god of wealth. And it's from that name Pluto that we get our word that is derived, Plusius, which is where we get the word Pluto from, and the word plutocrat. A plutocrat is somebody who is so wealthy unbelievably, unimaginably wealthy that he rules by reason of his wealth. You could say those Arab kings in Saudi Arabia are plutocrats. If they hadn't got that oil money, they probably wouldn't be reigning today. 
but they have and they do. This morning, I want to focus on the real God of wealth, the one who is truly rich in all things. Paul speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ, talks about his glorious inheritance, the one from whom all blessings flow, the one who can supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Amen? Paul in Romans 2, 4 speaks about the riches of his goodness. God is intrinsically good. His nature is good. His ways are good. His plans for us are always good. His heart towards us is good. In creation, when God created everything, he saw that it was good. But when he created man and woman, he said it was very good. Goodness emanates from the heart of a good God. Bible says that he makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He's good to all. He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He is good to all. James 1 and 5 says he gives to all men liberally. 1 Timothy 6, 17. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So the heart of God is good. The richness of God towards us is good. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of, the eyes of all look expectantly to you to give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Samuel says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. All of us who are born again of God's Spirit some of us for many, many years can testify we have proven that God is good. No matter what happens in life, there's one thing you can count on is the goodness of God. Even when things go pear-shaped or belly up, at the end of it, at the heads of the hunt, you can still look up and say, God, you're a good God and you'll get me through this and you'll take me to the other side because God is a good God. Notice... We read earlier in verse 4 of Romans 2 that the goodness of God is to lead us to repentance. Isn't that lovely? God is so good that whenever we sin, whenever we fall, whenever we fail, His heart towards us is so good that He leads us to repentance. And with repentance comes restoration. 2 Peter 3 and 9, Peter says, The Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, there's times when you look at stuff that's happening in the world and you may be tempted to say, and some people have said, why doesn't God strike them down? Because he wants them to repent. You know, there's a lot of talk today about the ISIS, the Islamic State terrorists who are taking over 
Iraq and parts of Syria and how they went into Mosul, which was ancient Nineveh. You know, isn't it amazing how all these biblical names are coming back to the fore today in this 21st century? And you remember Nineveh, how that God sent Jonah? They were a wicked race of people. They were torturous, barbaric, cruel, pagan. And yet God wanted to save them. And he sent, Noah, or sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, and he didn't want to do it. He wanted them dead. He wanted God to strike them down. And he didn't want to preach to them in case they would repent because he didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to die. And he got angry at God because God's heart was good towards them to give them a chance to repent. And they did repent. And in fact, they survived another hundred years because they repented. But in the end, they went back to what they did best and God did destroy them, but they had that opportunity. The Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's full of tender mercies, loving kindness. Paul understood this. You know, this, this was the great theme of Paul's preaching because he understood how good God was to him. He who persecuted the church, he who went out of his way to imprison Christians and to kill them, to see them stoned like Stephen. And yet God in his great mercy, what did he do? He had that appointment on the road to Damascus. I remember years ago, we had a, a Jew and an Arab, a, Jew, a Jewish pastor, an Arab pastor that came here. Uh, it was, I think it was one Wednesday morning. It was a leadership thing. And they came and they shared. And, uh, and they talked about you know, the conflict there and how they as Jew and Arab got on so well together in Christ. They were one in Christ. And, uh, but the Jewish pastor... He said that, uh, and they, they still have in Tel Aviv, they have a, like a, a, a cafe because it's a big, big tourist city. So they have a cafe and uh, Dugat it's called. And people comes in and, and then they share the gospel with them. But he says almost every day you get an Orthodox Jew uh, and they'll come and they'll stand outside and they'll shout at them in the top of their voice and they'll try to stop people going in. Uh, you know, and he says it, it, every day, it's says awful. Uh, but you know what he said? I used to be very, very angry at them. But he says, you know what? I began to realize one of them could be a Saul of Tarsus and could become an Apostle Paul. So he says, we try to win them for Christ now, even though they're in your face and <laughs> all kinds of things. But he said, you've got to be patient. Just keep praying for them. So Paul understood this. He understood the goodness of God. He, his testimony was, he says, I was the chief of sinners. Imagine that. He says, there was not a sinner worse than I ever was. Not one. I was the chief of them all. But he says, God in his mercy, he saved me. And his goodness, he came to me. Peter understood this. His fall was spectacular, wasn't it? Denying he ever even knew Christ. Promised he would fight for him. He would not desert him. And at the first opportunity, he folded like a stack of cards, didn't he? And how ashamed and embarrassed and humiliated he was whenever he denied the Lord those three times and the Lord turned around and looked right in his eyes. Didn't have to say anything. He really said it. Just looked right in his eyes. And at that moment he realized. And he went away 
humiliated, embarrassed, ashamed. But the goodness of God led him to repentance. Christ wasn't finished with him. Sure he wasn't. He drew him back again. David understood this. An adulterer, someone who caused a man to be killed, to hide his terrible sin, compounded his sin with murder, and yet in spite of it, when he repented, and God sent a prophet to him to confront him to get him to repent. But when he repented and he was truly sorry, he got restored. The goodness of God leads to repentance. Aren't you glad for that today? The riches of his goodness. The riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 and 7 speaks of the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2 and 7, the exceeding riches of his grace. And Ephesians 3 and 8, the unsearchable riches of his grace. It's almost as if Paul cannot find adequate words to describe the grace of God. He's scrambling to get a word that would adequately describe the depths and the width, the breadth of the grace of God, and he can't do it. So he just says, it's unsearchable. I can't fathom it. It's too deep to understand, but I receive it and I accept it. The grace of God. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Generally speaking, the riches of His goodness speaks to us of His care for us in creation. But the riches of His grace speaks to us of His care for us in Christ. One speaks of His provision, the other speaks of His pardon. One speaks of the outer man and all the needs that we have. The other speaks of the inner man and all the needs that we have on the inside. God's got it all covered by the riches of His grace. What is grace? Well, there's the old acronym, G-R-A-C-H, G-R-A-C-H, G-R-A-C-E, even. If I could spell it, it would be great, wouldn't it? God's riches at Christ's expense. I know that's a cliche today, but it's true, isn't it? God's riches at Christ's expense. God poured out of, his, out of his storehouse all of his riches to us, but it was at Christ's expense. He had to come. God's undeserved favor, his love expressed in mercy. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. And thank God for the difference in the two. Titus chapter 3. And I'll read from verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in Ephesians 2, Paul says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, and there's that word plusius, who is rich, who is exceedingly rich, who is beyond comprehension when it comes to riches, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Aren't those beautiful words I love the book of Ephesians. I read it often. You ought to read the book of Ephesians, that letter. Read it often. Read Paul's prayers for you and think that's for me. That's what God has for me. It's such an encouraging passage when you read them. However, we tend to see grace something passive rather than something active, as something negative rather than something positive, as something that's pardoning rather than something that's empowering, as something that only relates to our sins rather than relating to our service. Mostly when we think of grace, and we have mentioned a number of scriptures this morning, Mostly we think of it in terms of God saves us, He forgives us, He cleanses us, and that's all true, but it doesn't stop there. Grace didn't stop flowing in your life the moment you get saved. It's still flowing. Even if you were living a perfect life, you still need the grace of God to serve Him, to walk with Him, to work for Him to use your abilities for him that is given you by his grace. Grace is something for the rest of your life. And it's active. It's positive. It's empowering. It's for service. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1.15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. And in Hebrews 12, 28, the writer says, let us have grace by which we may serve God. I stand here today, you sit there today by the grace of God. Only the grace of God allows me to do this. 
Only the grace of God has equipped me and empowered me to do this. Only the grace of God has equipped and empowered you to do what you do. It's the grace of God. And that's why we magnify the grace of God. And that's why we realize how much we need God's grace every single day of our lives. This is why Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a testimony, isn't it? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Only God's grace has got me to where I am today. Nothing else. Not ability, not personality, not good nature, the grace of God. I am what I am. And that can be your testimony too. You are what you are by the grace of God. Remove the grace of God from us, what will we be? Back to where we started out. Living for ourselves, living in sin, rejecting God, but thank God for His grace that came to us. Apostle Paul, when he had that mighty revelation caught up into the third heaven, saw things that he couldn't even speak to another human being about, lest he be exalted above measure. That thorn in the flesh, that messenger of Satan was given unto him. And how he prayed those three times, Lord, take this away. You know, with all of Paul's tremendous spirituality and he was a giant spiritually but he was a man for all of that and he had feelings and emotions and he knew what hurt and pain was like and whatever that thorn was and that's not a debate for today but whatever it was he hated it he wanted rid of it he couldn't stand it and he prayed to God three times and you can imagine there were fervent prayers they weren't we wishy-washy prayers. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure he went fully at it and stormed heaven. But God says, no, my grace will be sufficient for you. I'll not remove it. It'll keep you humble. But my grace will be sufficient for you to handle it and for you to carry it. And there's many of us whether it's right now or whether it's been in the past or maybe in the future, will have some things to carry and only the grace of God will help you to carry the load. Only God's grace. Amen? And then Paul speaks of the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. Ephesians 3 and 6, that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. God in his great goodness and his great grace has made our, us partakers of his glory. Colossians 1, 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, called into his kingdom and glory. Peter writes, 1 Peter 5 and 10, the God of all grace who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. There's something about the glory of God that he wants us to share in. That he wants us to have and to receive and to experience and to know. In John 17, in Jesus' wonderful prayer, in verse 4 he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then if I go on down in that prayer to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you give me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world, that they may behold the glory that you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. The great heart cry of Jesus in that prayer is that you and I, apart from being one, may see him in all his effulgent glory. What a moment that is going to be. To see the Lord. We have never seen him with our natural eyes. We've never seen him in the flesh. But to see him in all of his glory, that's going to be something. Peter James and John got a little glimpse in the Mount of Transfiguration and they were so taken by it they didn't want to come off the mountain. They wanted to park there. Who wouldn't? But whenever we get to heaven and see the Master in all of His glory and it surrounds us and we'll be enveloped by it. <laughs> That's going to be wonderful, isn't it? Wouldn't it be lovely if in the house of God, some Sunday morning or some Sunday evening, we're all standing worshiping, and suddenly the glory came. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Would you keep on singing? Would you get on your knees? Would you fall down? Would you start to cry? Who knows? If the glory of God came in. You know, and if you read the historic revivals, you'll see that's exactly what happened. In the midst of the meetings, the glory of God came and all kinds of stuff happened. In the great 1859 revival in churches in Lurgan, when the glory of God came, people couldn't stand it. They cried, sinners cried out for forgiveness. Sometimes they went home and cried all day until they broke through. They couldn't stand it. People were falling in the streets because of the glory of God that would come. Wouldn't that be something? Would we be ready for that? Eh? can hardly come out to church if the sun shines, if the rain comes. Would we be ready for the glory of God? Would you be ready to be in church for a week if you had to be? I'm not sure we're ready for that. 
Maybe if the glory of God came, maybe we would be. But there'd be a work done in our hearts, wouldn't it? And it would change. It would change everything. This nation changed when the glory of God came. Boy, we need that again, don't we? Hmm. The riches of his goodness speaks of his provision. The riches of his grace speaks of his pardon. The riches of his glory speaks of his promise. The riches of his goodness, that takes care of our present. The riches of his grace, that takes care of our past. The riches of his glory, that takes care of our future. God's a rich God, isn't he? Let me just read one more verse before we take communion. First Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus. Note this, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. That you were enriched in everything by him. There's that word again, plusios. That you were enriched. That you were incredibly enriched. That you were exceedingly above your imagination enriched. Because that's the depth of this word that Paul's using here. Beyond your comprehension, you were enriched by Christ in everything. From the very moment you found Jesus, you were enriched in him and by him. That changed everything. And part of the, big part of the Christian experience of our growth in Christ is knowing the riches of God in Christ. And the more we know the riches of God in Christ, the more richer our Christian experience will be. What was the plutocrat? One who rules by reason of his wealth. We rule by reason of our spiritual wealth in Christ. We rule by reason of our spiritual wealth in Christ. God in Christ has given us incredible riches so that we can rule and reign as believers in this life. Amen. No wonder Paul said in Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can't get any richer than that. Sure you can't. I know that some of you wish you had an old aunt somewhere and she died and left you a fortune. But Christ died and left us a fortune in spiritual riches. And they're all there for us to receive and to embrace. 
let me tell you, we have just scratched the surface. They've just opened the chest just a little bit and had a little peek in. But I don't think they've fully opened the lid and dug in. They just peeked in. And sometimes when you read those scriptures in Ephesians, you can hardly believe that's talking about me. Is Paul talking about somebody else? No, he's talking about me. This is for me. This is for you. These are the riches of his goodness, the riches of his grace, and the richness of his glory. Amen? Isn't he good? Do you feel rich this morning? Bill Gates has got nothing in us. He's only got money. And when he dies, he's going to leave it. Now he's a very generous man. He's got a trust and he gives billions of his money away. So he's a very generous man. Fair play to him. That's wonderful. But when he dies, he's going to leave every cent of it behind. When we die, we're going to be entering into the fullness of our riches. <laughs> We've just got a taster here, but up there for all eternity. We'll have everything we ever need. Amen? Let's pray.